This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, questions about the Bible, questions about things that are going on in church, questions about things going on in your lives. Whatever it is, all you have to do is call us to 310-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, and uh, you just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be able to be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Now, forgive me, I'm out of practice at this. It's been almost two weeks, so uh, be patient, and remember, we would love your calls. Tonight, I'm going to be doing one of the best Bible studies, one of the most encouraging Bible studies Uh, In all of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to close the chapter, beginning in verse 14, uh, as we sort of take a turn next Friday night, we'll be in the practical section of uh, Ephesians, starting chapter 4, and I love teaching the practical sections, but this is sort of where it all turns, and we fall on our knees and pray before the Father. So that's tonight here at Calvary at 7 o'clock if you can't make it. Uh, We always have room on Friday nights. If you can't make it, um, you can watch it at calvarysa.com as we live stream it. And then on Sunday, uh, I'm beginning a brand new book. We are starting in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is really 2 Corinthians, but I'll explain that at another time. Uh, But the idea is 1 Corinthians is so timely for what we're going through. And I was excited. I've taught it several times here at Calvary Chapel, but always on Friday nights. And I just really believed the Lord wanted me to teach it on Sunday this time to the to the larger group. And uh, I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do. So that's this Sunday, uh, three services, 8.30, 10.15, and 11.59. I hope I'm going to be back in the flow of schedule um, by by the end of business on Sunday. So I'm back where I know what I'm doing and when I'm supposed to be doing it. So 
That's okay. Well, let me get to some questions that have been uh, sent in while we await your phone calls. The first one comes from Andrea. She says, Pastor Ron, can the devil know what I am thinking when I don't actually say it out loud? Uh, Andrea, um, or Andrea, I don't know which it is. Um, the, the devil cannot read our minds. So he doesn't know what you're thinking, um, but he knows you pretty well. You know, he's got his demons out checking you out and uh, sort of looking into your heart. He, he is a great student of, of uh, our behavior. Uh, I've often said he's the greatest psychologist that's ever lived. And um, um, so he can predict what you're going to do, um, but he doesn't know what you're thinking. Only God can read your mind, knows your, the words before they come out of your mouth, but the enemy can't. Now let me, as as I make that clear, I also want you to know that you don't have to worry about speaking out loud. Um, the devil's no match for Jesus. Christ lives in you. Paul calls the Holy Spirit the hope of glory. Um, so, so you don't have to be afraid of saying it out loud. It's not like, well, if I say it, the devil's going to hear me and he's going to pound me. Um, yeah, but but that's when you stay close to Jesus, and that's when you keep uh, that that place in your heart devoted to Him. And then, when the enemy tries to mess with you, it's Jesus in you that he has to deal with. So, uh, no, he, he, he doesn't know what you're thinking, but you don't have to be afraid of saying things out loud. And the only other thing that I'll say here, uh, Andrea, is that um, the Spirit of God lives in you, and he'll protect you. He'll direct your steps. All you have to do is give him the opportunity to do so. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question. Oh, by the way, Andrea, he can um, plant thoughts in your mind. We know that biblically, but he can't read your mind. Here is a question from Philip. He said, what advice do you have for someone just starting out as a pastor? Philip, these kinds of questions are always a little difficult to deal with, not knowing um, the the kind of issues that you're struggling with. We we all have different struggles. Uh, And my advice would be different. Uh, for somebody who is uh, maybe a little fearful than it would be for somebody uh, who is a little bit arrogant. So um, I think generally the, the, the most important advice, generally speaking, is that you have to remember that you're called by God. God called you to this ministry, uh, and only God can call you away. This can't be a ministry that you're trying out. It can't be a ministry that you say, well, I'm going to give it a year and see what God is doing. Uh, this is something you've got to know. When you're called, Paul talks in his letters a lot about uh, Paul, an apostle, called by the will of God or, or called by Jesus Christ. And we've got to know that that's our calling. You know, Philip, when I first knew I was called to be a pastor, there was a lady, and we loved this family. There was a, a family of, of, of my our son's doubles partner in tennis, and uh, we loved them, and they were both believers. and And um, one day she said, "I I hear that you're called to be a pastor." I said, "Yeah." And she goes, "Well, are you excited about it?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I am." And she looked at me and she said, "Well, then you're not called." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And she said, "Well, every pastor I've ever spoken to." 
needed to be dragged kicking and screaming into that position. And I just thought that just makes no sense to me. If God has something to give you, something to to use um, uh, his gifts to, 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 to send you to do something, it ought to be something you're excited about. And I really wrestled. She was, I don't know, the enemy was using her. She wasn't trying, but the enemy was using her to try to discourage me, to question my calling. And so, Philip, you've got to know you've been called. And if you know you've been called, you can't ever quit. You don't have the right to quit. If somebody's calling you pastor, or you're teaching the Bible, and anybody at all is showing up, you can't quit. And so I would think that perseverance and, and courage is something that you really need to foster. You need to walk by faith. I would also say this, Philip, that you've got to remember that you can't take people where you yourself haven't been. So if you don't trust God, you can't expect people to trust God. Uh, if you don't love your Bible, if you're not devouring it, well, then you can't expect people to, to listen to you as a Bible teacher. They're, they're not going to catch it just because you read it or teach it. They've got to see you live it. And so I think those are the basic things. Now, if you would like to email me, you can do that at questions at calvaryessay.com. Uh, and give me some more specifics. I'd, I'd love to take the time. Um, we've planted a lot of churches here. I love uh, spending time with pastors who are either new to the calling or, uh, or, or, or just sort of wrestling with whether or not they're sent out. But um, as a pastor, you can't be doing anything for you when Jesus was restoring Peter. Uh, and this will lead into the next question that I have um, from, from Lance. Uh, when Jesus was restoring Peter, he told Peter to feed, then to tend, and then again to feed his sheep. There's nothing in it for the pastor the pastor is privileged to be used by God. And remember, Philip, as a pastor, you're a servant of the people, you're a servant of God, and you're just a tool that God is using. I said that leads into the next question that I have, and this one is from Lance, and he says, what is the main role or roles for a pastor like you? Uh, and, and Lance, my answer to that question is, uh, my primary role is to, and this is going to sound uh, like I'm trying to sound spiritual, I'm really not. My primary role is to love the people. That's it. I gotta love them. I gotta pray for them. When pastors often look at people as well, you know, they're in my way, or or they're a source of pain or discouragement. You don't understand. They're the reason you're there. Without them, God doesn't need you. So the main role for a pastor is to love the people. Paul and I, we uh, we got to go see Gail Irwin uh, while we were in California. He lives just a few miles from where our son and daughter-in-law live. And uh, Gail, a dear friend of ours, he's been on this program and he's been a frequent guest over the years here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And by the way, um, he offered a whole bunch of free books uh, of the Jesus Style, free copies of the Jesus Style. So believe me, if you need or would like a copy of the Jesus Style, it is a book that I cannot recommend highly enough. Uh, Gail is the author. Um, email us at Calvary Essay or questions at calvaryessay.com and we'll be sure to get you some free of charge. Um, 
Uh, I love that Gail is is willing to do that. Uh, But he said the nicest thing to me. Uh, He said, you know, Ron, I talk about you a lot everywhere I travel. I talk about you and Paula a lot. And I said, oh, well, thank you. I hope that's good. And he, he just smiled and he said, I just tell people how much you love your people. I think in our pastor-centric culture, we who are pastors often forget that. I'm Jesus' ambassador. If I don't love the people, then I'm misrepresenting him. So that's the main role. Now, on an equivalent level with that, Lance, is my role as a Bible teacher. Um, You know, when you're teaching the Bible, that takes in counseling and and other things. But the, the, the primary idea is rightly dividing the Word of God. And that means I've got to study it. It means I've got to be prepared. I've got to let God speak to my heart. And, and then I've got to be able to, to, to share with the people uh, who, who listen to the Bible studies. I've got to share with them what God has put on my heart. Now, we do it in a systematic way, Lance. We teach through the Bible here. Uh, tonight is an example. I get to tell people what a grateful heart, grateful for what God has done. I get to tell them what that produces in us. What God does for us. And believe me, when you get a chance, I mean, this is this is a Bible study that is nothing but encouragement. And when you get that privilege, man, you got to take advantage of it. So those are the two main roles uh, for, for a pastor in the church. It's not to be the entertainer. It's not to be the cool guy um, wearing the hip clothes. Um, the, the, the primary roles are to love the people of God and to teach them the Word of God, unfolding before their very eyes the height and width and depth and breadth of God's love. Again, when Peter was restored, Jesus said, Feed them the Word, solid food, tend them, care for them, gather them together, and keep them there. And then he said again, Feed them. So those are the main responsibilities of a pastor, and it is both a blessing and a privilege to be able to do so. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question sent in by Debbie. Uh, she says in Matthew twenty two, the parable of the wedding guest with no wedding clothes. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? Well, Debbie, uh, the call of God is universal. Uh, Many are called. Jesus is speaking in general terms. Uh, He's speaking from a Jewish perspective. They would understand this. Many are called. Now, remember, what he said in that parable was that there was a a man who was having a a party sent to his his, uh, servants. He said, go tell everybody that they're invited to this party. Tell everybody and come to the party, but few responded. And so what he means there is that there are there is a universal call to everybody to come to Jesus. But relatively few, compared to the all, relatively few are actually going to show up. They had all kinds of excuses. Well, I got something else to do. Thanks for the invitation, but kind of thing. So that's what he's just saying. Now, the idea of the wedding guest with no wedding clothes, again, this is a very Jewish parable. 
And what he's trying to tell them, you know, you can't get in without the fine white linen of the saints, the righteousness of God, and only Jesus provides that. So what he's saying to Jews is, look, there was a Jew there holding on to the law of Moses. There was a Jew saying he was a son or she was a daughter of Abraham. And they found their way into the feast. Now, this does not mean that by accident somebody's actually going to sneak into heaven and be expelled. It doesn't mean that at all. That's taking this too literally. But what he's saying to his Jewish audience is that being a good Jew isn't going to get you an invitation. I find it striking, Debbie, in this parable, how with all of the splendor and all of the glory of the wedding supper of the Lamb, how instantly his attention was drawn to the one person who wasn't dressed properly. And what he's saying to the Jew is, Moses won't dress you properly. You're out. Now, we can extend that, Debbie, into our culture. You know, people say, well, I'm a good person. Being a good person won't get you invited to this wedding banquet. Being a particularly gifted person or being an important person on earth, none of that gets you invited. Now, you're invited to the banquet. You're called. But to find out if you're chosen, you've got to choose God. And since God knows we are saved by grace, and, and uh, of course, that based on the foreknowledge of God, that's the, the basis of his election or, or the idea of predestination. When you call on God, when you say, I choose of my own free will, Jesus, to ask you into my heart, to ask you to forgive me of my sins, well, what you find out is that you were called and chosen. By the way, this is a great parable for evangelism when you're sharing with people. Just say, you know, you can try to do everything the right way. You can try to be a good person, but none of that matters unless you're perfect because that's the standard for heaven. So, Debbie, I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you for the question. Here is... A uh, question that was just sent in to our producer from Anonymous. Uh, says, married over 21 years with children and lost temper with a wife to the point I hit her. She had me get counseling. Her and her family did forgive me. Wife did cheat on me. But the counselor mentioned that our marriage isn't valid because, or isn't valid based on the Bible because of the abuse uh, and in parentheses, he writes, I slapped my wife out of anger. She still loves me. I forgave her for cheating on me, and we are trying to work things out. But the trust level is at a low point. Based on the counselor saying our marriage isn't valid, is that really in the Bible? Uh, Anonymous, uh, my heart hurts for both of you. Um, let, let me say this. there There is no command in the Bible um, that would uh, suggest that what your counselor said to you was correct. Uh, I would worry about the counsel that you were getting for somebody like that. Now, having said that, what I do always in situations of physical abuse is tell the wife to leave the husband and not not necessarily to get a divorce, but to, but to get to a place where she is safe, not to be in danger at all. Now, um, 
if this is a one-time only thing, as bad as it is, it's not unforgivable. Um, I understand uh, your wife not trusting you, um, just like I understand you having a hard time trusting her because of her cheating on you. Um, but the, but the counselor was wrong when he said that your marriage isn't valid based on the Bible. Uh, there's really nothing in the Bible that would suggest that. Um, I would suggest that when you go to uh, for counseling, the two of you, that you go to your church, uh, to your pastor, not to not to a, a secular council, um, not not to, to somebody who's going to kind of sit down and try and negotiate things, but but really come and demonstrate for both of you your repentance. And you have to be, you didn't say whether you hit her because of the cheating or or it was before the cheating. You didn't say any of that. So, I mean, there's there's just got to be, this has got to be a move of God's Spirit. Um, again, I understand the trust level is low, um, but um, God is a restorer of all things. Um, you need to truly be repentant for striking her. She needs to know and understand that you're repentant. You have to understand that if you raise your voice at her, she is going to be frightened again. The enemy is going to use your past behavior to try to scare her. So I think the best thing I can do is you need to change so obviously that she no longer has any doubt at all. But please, please, please get to your pastor. Not a secular counselor. Not a, a Christian-based counselor. Get to your pastor Get in the Word, and the two of you uh, can work things out. And I will be praying for you. I would love for you to stay in touch with us just to let us know how things are going. Let's go to line one and talk with Al from San Antonio. Al, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Al, are you there? You're on the air. Oh, Pastor Arbor, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Al. Thank you. Yes, um, I, was, I just have two questions, and they're kind of parallel. Um, I wanted to know if you're familiar with the uh, with the ministry of the late pastor um, Derek Prince, and uh, if you could tell me uh, um, after that what you know about the Pentecostal religion. Okay, I can do that. Thank you, Al. We're inside about four minutes, so I may get back to this. Uh, maybe maybe I can do it. Uh, Derek Prince, uh, I, I think, was was most noteworthy for his involvement in the shepherding movement. Um, um, started out well, but but he he got into a position where it was really controlling, and the shepherding movement of the Jesus movement, the Jesus people days, is what I'm talking about. It was really they couldn't do anything without getting permission of somebody uh, in a pastoral position in their church. Everybody have to go to their pastors for everything. And, and Derek Prince abused that and, and the, the system of, of shepherding that he created or that he was largely responsible for um, what was abusive. It, it, it was just um, overwhelmingly abusive. Uh, in later years, Derek Prince repented of that. Uh, and honestly, I didn't follow him at all uh, after I got saved. Um, um, so I, I don't know if his repentance was genuine, uh, but the shepherding movement was was horrible. Um, Jesus wants you to walk in freedom rather than under bondage. 
and uh, and that's what Derek Prince is is most notable for. Regarding the Pentecostal religions, they are also have a tendency to be very very legalistic, Al. And I would I would be very careful. They have an emphasis on emotion and excitement, but very little uh, value do they place on the Word of God. Um, um, you know, it's one thing to get all excited to get goosebumps and to speak in tongues, but it's another thing how to deal to learn how to deal with the problems that we face every day in life. And my uh, assessment of the Pentecostal Church, by and large, is that the reason they are so legalistic is because they don't really teach nor understand the Bible themselves. So it's not something that I would um, endorse. Uh, they're they're Christians. Um, they're not heretics. They're just wrong. And I think that, that they're wrong about so much is is really because their focus isn't on the Word of God. Their focus is on experience. There's a lot of shouting, sweating, and spitting going on in the Pentecostal church. But there's very little concern for true holiness, a heart that's right with God, rather than how you dress, the length of the skirt, whether or not you cut your hair, those kinds of things. Uh, uh, so I don't recommend the Pentecostal faith or the Pentecostal denominations at all. Find a church with a balance between spirit and the word, and um, and you will be blessed as a result, Al. But be a little bit wary of Pentecostal denominations. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Santa for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 hey before i forget i want to thank pastor ken for filling in with me and, and may who did the date day edition last thursday i meant to mention that on yesterday's program and just forgot so um, thank you, uh, Pastor Ken and May, uh, for the for uh, letting me and Paula go. And then uh, also uh, my staff here, who filled in uh, at the pulpit for me, Ken last Sunday, and then we had three of the other pastors on staff who who uh, filled in for the Wednesday and Friday night services. And uh, I want to thank them as well. And if you want some really good teaching, um, boy, get on our, our website, calvarysa.com, and you will be blessed abundantly. Um, I'm, I'm really, really proud, proud of those guys. So um, for the last two Wednesdays and the Friday before, uh, we had people filling in. Let's get back to the questions while we await more phone calls. Al, I hope that answered your question uh, adequately. Uh, this is a question from Devin. Um, what is meant in John chapter 3 when Jesus said we must be born of the Spirit and of water? I'm going to turn, uh, i got to take a, just a second to get there. Um, I'm sorry, bear with me, John. Okay, I think it's verse 3 and 6 chapter 3 and 6. 
um, verse 5 first. Jesus said, Hitherto no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, if you stop right there, uh, I understand why people are confused about this. But he gives us the answer in the very next verse, verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's the, the being born of water. That's a natural human birth. Uh, the water sack is broken, and the baby comes out through the water. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So uh, that's the born-again experience that he's just about to tell Nicodemus you must have. You know, I've had people say, well, you know, the, the, the water is a symbol of the Word uh, or of the Spirit. and so. But, but he's just making a statement. The qualifications for entering the kingdom of God is first you have to be born in the natural way and second you have to be born in the supernatural way. So when he says flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit that's the commentary, uh, Devin, on verse 5. So that's all he's talking about. He's not talking about the word. He's not talking about the spirit of God. He's simply saying and he's telling a Jew, a, a religious Jew, Israel's preeminent teacher, that this is the way to be born again. Nicodemus is incredulous. Now, Nicodemus isn't naive. What Nicodemus is doing is, I think, what happens to a lot of us when we're going through that process of the Spirit of God sort of wooing us to Jesus. Um, He's saying, basically, how could I be so wrong? I've invested my whole life in the law and knowing it and learning it. In teaching it. And now you're telling me, Jesus, that none of that matters. And Jesus, I think, in verse 5 and 6, smiled when he said this. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're right. Everything that you've invested in is inadequate. You want to go to heaven? It's not going to come through the law. It's not going to come through being a teacher. It's going to become by being a born-again believer. Remember, he said, unless you become as a child, you can no way inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to be born once, the natural way, and second, the supernatural way. So, Devin, that's all that means. It's nothing more complicated than that. Um, Verse 6 is the commentary on verse 5. Thank you for the question. Jack says, Pastor Ron, is it possible that the treaty recently made between Israel and the United Arab Emirates could be a precursor to the peace and safety times Jesus spoke about? You know, Jack, I hadn't thought it in the way about that in the way that you um, presented the question, but I think you're on to something there. Um, this this treaty that the United States has been instrumental in and and um, you know I listened to uh, one of um, uh, Donald Trump's rallies and he talked about he's being nominated for um, Nobel Peace Prizes and all I could think about was well that's the only prize you're going to get for that treaty uh, because what, what's been negotiated between Israel and the Arab nations is a two-state solution and believe me God's not behind that Jack there's no two-state solution God has given all of that land to Israel. Not to be given away. Now, people can come. God's always said of foreigners they could come, but they had to come on his terms. And so while this looks good to the world, and even to Christians, Christians have been hailing this as a wonderful thing that God is doing through Donald Trump and through uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates. 
The truth of the matter is it's not a peace treaty at all. There can't be any peace when there's still hostility. And I think this is one of the things that the Antichrist is going to do when he appears. Now, I want to make sure nobody misunderstands. I'm not for a moment suggesting that anybody involved in this peace treaty is the Antichrist. But here's what I'm saying is peace only comes when we surrender to the will of God. And we're only going to do that when the Prince of Peace comes and forces that surrender. And that's going to come at the end of the Great Tribulation. So while they're sitting down at tables and they're making a little bit of progress in terms of getting along, a two-state solution is never going to work between Israel and any of the uh, foreign nations uh, because the state belongs to Israel. It's God's and he gave it to them. So... Uh, I think it is a precursor to the time Jesus warned us when people saying peace and safety be on guard. And so, Jack, I think you're you're you've got something there. I do believe that this is sort of a, a trial balloon of the devil. Um, again, not that our president or everybody else is doing the devil's work. I think the devil's pulling the strings. And uh, I think this is maybe a trial run for when the man that we know as the Antichrist is revealed uh, after the rapture of the church. Here is a question anonymously. Um, Do I really have saving faith if I struggle trusting God with money? Um, Anonymously, I don't think you have a question about saving faith. I think your question is more about living faith. Now, this is an important distinction. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is, the faith is a gift from God. That's how we're saved. We're saved because the Holy Spirit starts working in your heart. But that begins a process of learning to trust God with every facet of our lives. And so that's what I mean when I say living faith. You've got the faith to get to heaven, but evidently if you struggle with trusting God with money, you don't have the faith to live on earth. And God's going to keep working in your heart. So yeah, I would say your faith is saving faith. It's adequate. But here's what I would say in addition. You're missing out on everything God has for you here. Now I don't know what you mean by trusting God with money, whether you're doing with your money what you want instead of what God wants, whether you're not giving to your church, whatever it is. But you got to realize that the money you have doesn't belong to you. As a born-again believer, it belongs to him. Now, he's going to let you keep most of it anonymous. But the money is his. So when we look at money as, well, this is mine, I earned it, then there's no way that we have enough faith to be blessed by God in the area of money. Money has become a little G-God in your life. So here's the question. Do you really, after everything God has done for you, and by the way, you might tune in to our Bible study tonight to think about everything that God has done and what our appropriate response ought to be. When you say, Jesus, I'm struggling trusting you with money, but I'm going to do it anyway. It'll change your life. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to pour out bagfuls of money. Unfortunately, we've 
misrepresented the Lord with much of our prosperity preaching. But here's what it means. It means that when you trust God with money, you do it because he's given you far greater riches. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope and the promise of heaven, the, the, the blessed hope, the rapture of the church. All these things are promises for us. And as long as you are holding on to that money issue, then you're really not trusting God at all. You want to know where your heart really is with God? Evaluate two areas, your time and your treasure. What do you spend your time doing? Is it what God wants you to do or is it what you want to do? The same is true with money. You know, Anonymous, let me share a little bit. Nobody's on hold right now. Um, when I got saved, I, I, I had been very wealthy. And when I got saved, um, I'd lost everything. My life was an absolute disaster. And all I could think about was, was I need money. You know, I'm in trouble. I need money. Money's the only thing going to bail me out. And, and I remember taking my walks with the Lord and struggling with this, uh, asking him to give me lottery numbers, those kind of things. And, and, you know, one day he just spoke to my heart and he said, I've given you everything. I've redeemed you from an eternity in hell. I've proven to you that I love you. We walk together every day. Why do you think you still need money? Now, i got to tell you, Anonymous, in my old life, before Christ, I carried around a lot of cash. Every day, a lot of cash. It made me feel important. It made me feel big. I could help people, which, which padded my ego. Uh, I gambled a lot. I always wanted to have money to gamble. I carried around a lot of cash. I've been saved, and Paula's at home. She can vouch for this. But in the 29 years I've been saved, if I ever have had more than 50 bucks in my pocket, I, I can't remember. Uh, Paula just gave me $50 on vacation because I was paying for something, and she wasn't going to be right there. Uh, and I'm $50 in my pocket. I, when she comes back, I take it right in my pocket and give it to her. The thing I used to worry about all the time, I no longer even think about. Now, I think about money, of course, here as, as we administer the church. Uh, we do everything for free, so money's always an issue. But personally, my life is richer by far, by far richer than when I was actually rich. And I just don't carry money. I just don't carry money. If she leaves town, she leaves me some money on the on the on the counter. But but I mean I just don't I, I just don't think about money. We go to a restaurant, Paula pays. It just I can't see, but beyond that, just money's not an issue. And I can promise you, Anonymous, that it is a much better way to live. Much, much better way to live. So trust him. I challenge you to trust him. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Dennis. He says, I'm trying to come out of the faith movement, but still struggle with why God wouldn't want his people to be prosperous. Um, Dennis, let me turn the question back on you. 
Why would you think God would want you to be prosperous? There's no reason you could ever come to that conclusion reading the Bible. The only reason you even think about that is because liars, false teachers, have told you that's what God wants you to be. And because that appeals to our flesh, we're starting 1 Corinthians on Sunday, and Paul, the whole letter is directed as a rebuke against this carnal church. Well, the, the, the Christian, the church that, that talks about God wanting to be prosperous, they're appealing to your carnality, the very thing that we're supposed to do away with. And so, take a different perspective. Why would God, who made his son poor, he who was rich became poor? Why would God want for you or for me more than he wanted for his own son? And certainly his son was entitled to anything and everything. He was the ruler, the creator of the world. So why would God want you or me to have more than he gave his son. Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus walked this earth as a stranger. God wants you to walk this earth by faith, trusting him. Let me ask you another question, Dennis. Is it easier to please God when you do something hard? Or when something easy comes along? Well, obviously the answer is when you do something hard. Can you be filled with joy without money? Without nice things? And even the question, the way you worded it, presupposes a perspective that says, you know, I'm entitled to these things. I deserve these things. But here's the thing, you got a lot of money in the bank. You're not going to trust God, you're going to trust money. That's what got Lot in trouble. Remember when he and Abraham's flocks had become so big that they had to separate. They couldn't exist together anymore. Not enough room. Abraham, who really knew and trusted God, told, and he could have insisted on taking the, 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 the best place, but he said, you choose where you're going to go and I'll go the other direction. And Lot looked at Sodom and he saw that the plains were well watered. He saw that there was a thriving city. He said, I want to stay here. Why? Because that's where prosperity was. Abraham walked the other direction in the desert. One of them went with God, the other one went alone. So why would God not want us to be prosperous? How about he wants you to trust him for everything that you need and everything that you have? In answering the question before this, Dennis, I just said that, that I'm richer by far with no money than when I had more than I thought I could ever spend. So God simply wants your heart. And if God said, I'll make you rich if you trust me, we'd probably trust him. But God didn't say that. He said, trust me and you'll be rich. But not rich with material things. Rich in the power of God's love and his spirit. So, Dennis, that's the reason. Um, don't, don't try to come out of the faith movement. Run away as fast as you can. It is pernicious. It is evil. It's wicked. And uh, there's a whole bunch of Christians, real believers, unfortunately, who are getting ripped off because they won't open their Bibles and critically divide the Word 
when they're getting ripped off in the process. Here's a question from Matt. He says, what is the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, and where are they? Uh, the better question, Matt, is who they are. Remember, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, but that witness is, or that great cloud of witnesses are the people who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now, they're not witnesses of our lives. And a lot of times people read, remember there's no chapter and verse divisions that are inspired by God. And chapter 12 simply continues um, the, the thoughts in chapter 11. And, and basically what Paul is saying as the author of Hebrews is this. He's saying that since there is a great cloud of witnesses, there are witnesses to us of the faithfulness of God rather than witnesses of what we are doing. They're not uh, angels in heaven who are watching. They're not the dead in Christ who are in heaven watching us. They're not witnesses of us. They're witnesses to us. And the context is clear. They are the witnesses from um, Hebrews chapter 11. Word is marturos, and we get our English word martyr from it. Let's go to Melissa on line one. Melissa from San Antonio, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Welcome back. Um, oh, thank I you. A, <laughs> uh, God's glad that you both made it back safely. Um, I have a question. Um, it's regarding Judas, and um, I've been attending some Zoom uh, Bible studies from my old church in California, and Judas has come up the past couple of weeks, and <clears throat> it's been said in the Bible studies that Judas is going to have a second chance and the second resurrection, and I was wondering if you can just speak on that a little bit, and mm -hmm. I will listen to you offline. Thank you, Melissa. Can't wait to see you again. Uh, Melissa, that church is, is not a healthy church. Um, the second resurrection um, is, is not um, a good thing. Um, the second resurrection leads to the second death. The, 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 the resurrection that happens when we're born again is what seals our fate in heaven. Judas, according to Jesus' own words, was the son of perdition doomed to destruction before the foundation of time. Jesus said of, of Judas that it would be better uh, that he had never been born. And um, that's a really unhealthy view of, of, of uh, the word. And um, I can promise you there are all kinds of other problems as well. Uh, but there is no second chance. We know that. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed that a man once to die and then face judgment. Um, that's that's a general term for man, mankind. Judas certainly qualifies. So there are no second chances. No purgatory. There's no praying people out. There's no, well, well you know, he was chosen to do this by God. He didn't have a choice. That's a real unhealthy and imbalanced view of of uh, of the scriptures in total but but certainly of the words of Jesus as well uh, not a healthy thing at all Melissa so um, if you've got people in that old church that you love um, probably a good time to talk to them about uh, about these kind of things thank you for the call we're inside four minutes so let me see what I got left for a question here Olivia says 
What is the abomination of desolation from Daniel chapter 9? Um, there's there's sort of a short-term and a long-term fulfillment of this. When Antiochus Epiphanes uh, went into the Jewish temple, uh, he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies, and that was sort of the forerunner of the abomination of desolation that Daniel talks about in the very end of time. That's a time, the midway point of the Great Tribulation. For after three and a half years when people are saying peace and safety and the Antichrist has emerged as sort of the savior of the world, um, um, he is going to tire. Remember, he's empowered by Satan himself. He's going to tire of, of worship. He's going to get rid of the false prophet. He's going to get rid of the church on earth. He's going to demand that people worship him. And he's going to set himself up in the Holy of Holies to be worshipped. And that's the ultimate abomination of desolation. Now, Olivia, it's also the reason that Jews are going to run from him. In the second half of the Great Tribulation, Jews are going to be be preserved in the rock city of Petra. They're going to flee. Uh, Isaiah talks about it like as, as though they were wings uh, on the wings of eagles. They're going to go to this rock city of Petra where they're going to be kept safe until the very end when Jesus returns. Um, um, from the Antichrist's wrath. Um, but the reason they're going to run from him is because they, they simply will never bow down and worship a false god. I think the the 70 years in Babylon sort of took care of that for them. And um, um, they're going to run away and Jesus is going to reveal himself to them. Zechariah, wh- where did you get those wounds? He's going to say to them, I got these wounds in the house of my friends. And there's going to be weeping and mourning. And one-third of the Jews alive at the time are going to repent of the murder of Christ. And they're going to um, become believers. They're going to enter into the millennial kingdom. But but the sad part, Olivia, is that means two-thirds of them are, are, are not going to believe. And they're going to be judged. And they're going to spend eternity in hell separated from God. So that's the abomination of desolation that Daniel chapter 9 is speaking about. Prophecy often has both a short-term and long-term fulfillment. And this is one of those cases where uh, the slaughtered pig of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, is sort of the short-term fulfillment of it, uh, sort of a harbinger of the greater apostasy to come. And uh, that that final apostasy is going to come um, during the Great Tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Thank you for the question. I love Daniel chapter 9. Well, we're about done, I think, for the program today. That means we're about done for the week. Um, Wherever you are, go to church. Um, Let God speak to your heart. Christians, it's time for all of us to get to church, not to watch it online. It's time for us to get to church and be a part of the body using the gifts that God has given us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you. Uh, for bearing with me while Paul and I were gone. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.